Hi everyone, I'm Astaire. I'm Layla. I'm Chastity. And you're listening to The Exposé, where we peel back the layers around a taboo topic, onion style. This week we're talking about the end of the DACA program and the DREAM Act. We also have a special guest here who I will allow to introduce herself. I will not tell you anything about her, so go for it. I'm Chastity. I'm the Director of Audience Development and Engagement here at The Tempest. And as a quick weird fact about me, I, I really don't have a weird fact. I'm just a geeky person. I play video games and I read books. There's nothing, nothing. I'm weird. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> just generally just weird. Just generally weird. I'm just a generally weird person. <laughs> She likes wearing blonde wigs. Yes, I do. Really intense platinum blonde, blonde wigs. Wig. Interesting. And I have dyed my hair every color of the rainbow. My natural hair. Oh, snap. There you go. That's a weird factor. <laughs> <laughs> Which was your favorite color? Red. Burgundy. Burgundy? Yeah, it was like a dark red. Back when Rihanna went red, I wanted to go red. So... <laughs> <laughs> You remember that whole thing? Yeah, that was great. Yeah. You Did you do gray or silver yet? <laughs> no, I stopped dyeing my hair. I like my natural hair. That's why I wear wigs. Oh, okay. That's why I did platinum blonde. <laughs> De cada pregunta la respuesta fue tu amor No creí que esto fuera a pasar Ya estaba decidido Que yo lo me iba a quedar Hasta que el destino se apeado Antes que entraras a mis planes Era un vagabundo de corazón En peligro de extinción y vida Antes era un desastre Tú llegaste a hacerme tanto bien Cambiaste todo cuando te encontré Okay, well, with that, we're going to awkwardly segue into the topic of, <laughs> of today's episode, and Esther is taking the control of the ship today, so why don't you tell us what DACA is, because I think people kind of know, some people will know fully what it is, kudos to you, other people, it might not be as fully understood, I mean, we hear a lot about it in the news, just really briefly skimmed over. I guess I'll start with the reason why I'm leading this conversation, if you're just tuning in to the expose for the first time is because I am an undocumented immigrant. I was born in Spain, came here when I was three with my parents, and have been undocumented for the past 25 years of my life. And I am a DACA recipient. So DACA is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program that was an executive order passed by President Obama back in 2012. Essentially, it was a deal that was kind of brokered between the Democrats and the Republicans to provide temporary protection from deportation and a work permit to undocumented youth who qualified. And like I said, it is temporary. It, it only lasts for two years. You had to renew it every two years and you had to, there were some pretty strict qualifications including not having a criminal record, had to have been in the United States for a certain amount of time. All, all of these things have graduated from school here. And it was also temporary in that it was an executive order. So essentially, when a president passes an executive order, or sometimes they're called executive action, means that it's not a permanent law. So the next president can just take it away. 
without going through Congress or the House. So as we know, 45 made it part of his campaign promise to end this program. There are about 800,000 undocumented people who have DACA, and he went ahead and did that on September 5th. I will say he didn't even have the guts to um, announce that he was ending it himself. Uh, He had Senator Jeff Sessions do it. So essentially, they allowed up until October 5th to have people renew. And after that, they're not accepting any more renewals. And so they're now putting pressure on Congress to pass some sort of um, more permanent protection for, for the youth who are now going to be at risk for deportation and are going to lose their work permits. Yeah, so that's essentially what DACA is. I think that one thing that I find fascinating, I'll just note this, about Trump's... Um, way of announcing policies or realities that he knows is not going to be popular is that he always has someone else do the job. And the other day I was listening to an NPR podcast and they actually talked about The Apprentice. And this podcast is called, in case you want to listen to it and leave us, um, it's called Embedded. And so basically they talked about that Apprentice and that, you know, the infamous you're fired scene that you see in every episode. The producers actually film that separately. So Trump is not actually able to fire people or make decisions that affect people in person. And I think that's so telling of the type of leader that he actually is. And I mean, on top of that, when it comes to DACA, one thing that a lot of the, you know, there's been bipartisan support for renewing the you know, the program. But like the main argument I hear over and over again is that it's these are innocent kids, they were brought over. And you know, they've led like lawful lives, they've been abiding by society and doing everything right. And they shouldn't be punished for decisions that their parents made. And so one thing that plays right into respectability politics is the fact that you're, you're not permitted to reapply to the DACA program if you are a convicted felon or if you're uneducated. And so it's really easy for folks who say that they support everyone's ability to live in the United States. I mean, it's like a way for them to feel good about themselves. But at the same time, I mean, it's straight up respectability politics because education is such a privilege and it plays right into stereotypes about immigrants and about the opportunities that are afforded to those that have restrictions or, you know, come from backgrounds that might not place Like, if you're in a bad situation, now you're automatically considered a bad person. I don't know if that makes any sense. Like, let's say you were caught shoplifting and now you're convicted because you were, you know, shoplifting for one reason or another. Does that now make you a horrible person who who shouldn't be an American citizen? Like, it makes no sense. Yeah, that's one of the major issues, but also one of the many problems with that narrative is also that we know that this government really decides who is a criminal and who's not, right? While that framework, the way that they're um, talking about criminals is to, you know, it makes you think like, oh my god, there's people, there's like murderers out there, you know, and 
rapists and all these people and we don't want those people here and this program keeps those people from getting citizenship and and entry into this country but the problem is that essentially the government really decides um who is a criminal and the people who are being deported are you know moms who are driving to their kids to school and they have maybe they like don't put their blinker on or something and they get stopped by the police and the police ask about their citizenship status and they find out oh this person is here undocumented so then they call ICE and they end up in a detention center and and that's just messed up especially with the our criminal justice system is so broken and flawed already even for citizens here to not allow someone due process regardless of their citizenship status is unconstitutional really at the end of the day but really the the main issue with the framework of you know we came here it was it wasn't our fault all of that which is really the the narrative that was used to that the democrats used to pass daca is that it criminalizes our parents who really have done the most work to you know to bring us here they're really the foundation of our economy our you know migrant workers farm laborers who are parents of undocumented youth and some people who don't have families are here you know um really sustaining this economy so esther we've heard like you talked about it like a lot in officially like the laws but i would you know i think i would be interested about understanding how it affects you personally so when daca um came out in 2012 um i was very skeptical because i really thought that it was a trick you know, to get us to basically come out of the shadows, um, register with the government, you have to get fingerprinted, you have to keep your address updated, give them just tons of information about yourself. And I, I didn't want to do it. I have the privilege of, I grew up in Utah and I'm white. And so, you know, no one really questioned me. Um, I wasn't like out on the street worried that I was going to get targeted by police you know, the, the threat of raids that a lot of communities are subject to, uh, black and brown communities, wasn't really something that I had to deal with. And so I was really just, it was really more of just like an emotional um, internal battle for me at the time. And um, there were definitely situations that I was in where I was a lot I was very limited because of my immigration status. I couldn't get financial aid for school. You know, I had to, didn't have the same job opportunities as my peers. I couldn't travel, you know, things like that. But for the most part, you know, I didn't feel really threatened. And so I felt like, why should I come out to the government if, you know, like, okay, I can't really go anywhere. I may not have the same opportunities, but, you know, like, this seems like a bigger risk. But then my little sister had no choice <laughs> and uh, she was trying to be a helicopter mechanic and she needed uh, an ID to um, get into the airport, um, to get airport clearance so that she could go actually go to school at, at the hangar. And so she had to apply for DACA. And so um, I decided to go ahead and apply as well. And it really did change my life. Um, I really can't deny that. Um, I felt now that I had a lot more freedom to find whatever kind of job I wanted to, um, which is how I ended up in New York City. I also felt more secure 
And so once my parents were no longer undocumented because they they got green cards through their marriages, I felt like I could also come out and be a bigger part of the movement because of that. So it really made a difference in my life and in a difference in a lot of people's lives. But unfortunately, it came at the expense of, you know, a record number of undocumented immigrants being deported. Um, three million, the Obama administration deported three million undocumented immigrants, which is more than any other president. Under and what, under what, I mean, what was the rationale? So they just increased enforcement. Um, they increased enforcement in border communities. I mean, there are some undocumented immigrants living, living at the border that cannot leave their county because there are actually checkpoints before, like miles and miles, like a hundred miles in um, from the border. And so if they end up at a checkpoint and and are found uh, to be undocumented, they'll be deported. So they're literally confined to, you know, their town or their county. And so, yeah, more, uh, they increase the number of, of ICE agents. They started getting more people in detention centers, um, expediting their removal, things like that. And and then, you know, even as early as last year, earlier last year, they started to prioritize the deportation of recent undocumented immigrants. So mothers and children who had just come into the country fleeing just horrible atrocities in Central America. And they made that their priority for deportation. So the Democrats like to position themselves as the heroes <laughs> of undocumented immigrants, but they really have a lot of blood on their hands. And so this is why um, there are a whole bunch of radical undocumented youth now who are changing the narrative of, of this issue in the country. And they're doing that by taking really radical direct action. So on September 5th, when DACA was taken away, there is a movement of undocumented folks called Movimiento Cosecha, um, and they're fighting for the permanent protection, dignity, and respect of all undocumented immigrants. And so they organized a big civil disobedience um, in front of Trump Tower. And we actually did a sit-in, and there were nine undocumented immigrants who were arrested that day, and and about uh, over 20 allies as well. And it was, I think it was like 34 people total. And we shut down Fifth Avenue twice, the traffic. Uh, blocking traffic. And that was strategic, right? To do it on that day um, in New York City, in such a public place. And so there were there was media everywhere, everywhere. Like, you know, I, I had a reporter like tell me to get out of the way because I was live streaming the whole thing. And anyway, it was it was insane. But it was great because we were able to really shift the narrative to say that we will no longer allow politicians to um, break apart our communities, to throw our parents under the bus, um, to not recognize the labor of undocumented immigrants that really makes this country run. Yeah, we're going to be fighting for everybody now. It's everybody or or nobody. Of course, as you can imagine, that really caused a pretty big rift in the undocumented community because there are some folks who, um, you know, they have built an entire life on DACA, on sand, really, you know, and if, if you think about it, like if you have a, if you have a family, a career, you know, a whole life now, um, you're going to do anything that you can to, to keep it secure, right? So, um, 
so now the Democrats are at it again, and they're, you know, trying to pass a DREAM Act, but with, again, all this enforcement that is going to criminalize mostly undocumented communities. What is the DREAM Act? So the DREAM Act is essentially, it's a bill that's just been reintroduced over and over and over, but essentially it would allow all the people who qualified for DACA to have a more permanent path to citizenship because DACA wasn't a path to citizenship. It was just temporary protection. So this would mean that, you know, it would probably be like a 10-year process, but it would provide a way for um, undocumented youth or DACA recipients to um, apply for citizenship. In case people don't know, once you have undocumented status in this country, so if you overstay your visa or if you cross over the border uninspected, there's no pathway to citizenship. Some people, if you if you overstay your visa, you can you can adjust your status that way, but that's the only thing. Or if you are abused by an American citizen, or if you are the victim of a crime and you corroborate with the police. So there are also those special visas as well. But essentially, unless you have had something horrible happen to you, um, or you overstay the visa and and get married, there's just no there's no line to get in the back of. And so the DREAM Act would provide basically a process to eventually become a citizen. You know, the bullshit around this is the fact that when it comes to talking about the DREAM Act and it comes to talking about DACA, the framing around it has just been so tinged with this continued battle or whatever you want to call it around who is allowed to be American and who isn't. And, you know, as someone who is not, you know, directly affected by this, as in I am not someone who has to reapply for the program, right? And my, you know, my parents came in and we had to do the whole like citizenship process. But the way that the Muslim ban is framed and the way that it's discussed and the way that like it's been you know, people have been comfortable being like, oh, you know, the Muslim ban, they're going to be detention centers. I remember actually I was asked in a podcast, like just out of the blue, what would happen if, you know, the Muslim ban took place and they put you in a detention center. And I was like, actually in physical shock. But then hearing you talk about DACA and what dreamers have to go through in order to even be considered eligible to to even be allowed to continue to stay in the program it's a like you're you're literally having to document every part of your life it's almost and pardon the analogy because i know that in some ways this may seem inappropriate but it's in some ways similar to what sex offenders have to do when they're released from prison in which they are literally documented in every physical possible way put in a database people know like whether or not you know what their status is they have all of these check-ins and all this bullshit that they deserve (laughs) that they deserve but then when it comes to dreamers and their parents who literally came here for a better future which is quite literally what the immigrants that started this nation came here for there's like the level of dehumanization is it's like beyond words and i understand that you know this is a something that people say over and over again but i guess i would ask those listening you know regardless of what your feelings are around this how would you feel if you had to get fingerprinted 
how to notify people of where you're living, where you're headed, you know, can't enter certain areas without, you know, like don't have the privilege to do certain things without getting permission from like governmental forces. How would you feel if that was the case? And and even saying, oh, well, you know, they should have considered that before coming to the US. That is an incredibly privileged bullshit motherfucking statement to make. Like that is bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Like has like just stating that someone should have reconsidered their decision to move to a nation to provide and build a better future for themselves and their family and for those that come after them is frankly the most un-American thing I can ever like I can think of you know I think that the Muslim ban and the and this issue and and really the the war against poor people the the war against people of color in this country they're all related and it's all a big political game, really, at the end of the day. It's not a coincidence that <laughs> the countries that are banned are countries that don't align with the supposed American way of life, right? Or the values that we supposedly have of uh, democracy. I mean, my question is, so Chastity, you live more Southern, like in a more southern part of the U.S., we're, we're, we're more Midwest. Like we're not South South. <laughs> well, we're you're in. Well, well, when I live in Yorba, Kentucky, Yorba's more of the city. Outside of that, you do get more country. But I've never been outside Yorba in my own state. Okay, well, you have a southern accent, and you live in Kentucky. And that's I'm unique. People southern. in Kentucky ask me why I have a southern accent. <laughs> like no one so, in my family has a southern accent. <laughs> it's. <laughs> so people in Europe ask me, where are you from? <laughs> so I guess my my question But what was your question? That, <laughs> with that um <laughs> Southern accented chastity living in Louisville, Kentucky. My question is Esther lives in the north. I live in DC where everybody likes to pretend that they are the genius in politics. But Chastity, you live in Kentucky, and you have a weird accent that nobody knows why you have. That's a side note. Correct. I love your accent. Um, but my question is, is when it comes to policies like this, like, you know, when it comes to DACA and when it comes to, you know, conversations around communities of color, even, you know, if you want to take it out to, like, the recent protests by um, predominantly African-American players in, you know, the NFL, NBA, all that. Like, what's the tone when people have those conversations in Louisville or in Kentucky? Like, is it sympathetic or... I mean, I'll be honest. I don't even think we really have those conversations in an open space. I know we would have it on campus, but, I mean, I've never come across as in my city as a city that has those conversations a lot. Now, there's issues in my city with diversity, and that might be a reason why. And we definitely don't have those conversations in my neighborhood. <laughs> So yeah, so basically nobody talks uh, about it. I mean, we talk about it, but we don't, I don't feel like it's as predominant as like in D.C. or in New York as in bigger cities. We don't have riots. We don't really, with our case and you see people standing on the street with signs, like stand uh, for dreamers, but I won't, we don't really unify a lot in my city. It's more the campus academics, especially not the workplace. Why do you think that protests or that kind of, um, organizing isn't really something that's done as much in where you are. I'm 
Yeovil's a mainly segregated city. It's still kind of like blacks will live in a certain area, whites will live in a certain area. Partly probably because we're smaller and a lot of people don't, we just don't touch those subjects because of sensitivity issues. Honestly, I don't know why. I think we're trying to do more as a city, but it's just one of those cities where we're just not coming together as much as we should. Yeah, and I think that that really speaks to, you know, where the resources go in this country for organizing. And it really speaks to the problem with um, the nonprofit system and the way that philanthropy works generally is that instead of grass oh yeah i was gonna say i think another issue is maybe a lot of people don't know how like what we can do or how we can help like what you mentioned resources and like so we're not really aware of like what can we do or there's not really a place you know since people aren't speaking about it we don't really know like how we can help yeah and that's totally valid because really a lot of the attention goes towards you know donate to these national organizations Mm -hmm. absolutely you know rather than like really focusing on get involved in your local community like um you know find the maybe small hubs of organizing that's happening in community centers or in churches or or you know wherever and so that's really you know if we want to take it back to what people can do to support undocumented immigrants right now and to support um uh daca recipients um, I think that, first of all, it always following the lead of people directly affected. And so that means, you know, being a good ally means first being a good listener. There are undocumented immigrants everywhere <laughs> in this country. And th- this is where really the intersection of racial justice and immigration and, and all of that uh, comes into play. Because just like one of the ways that we keep cops from coming into our communities and killing black and brown people is by getting to know your neighbors, right? This is also how we help curb gentrification as well. It's it's about really getting to know your neighbors and and being in community with the people around you and protecting each other, you know? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, have, a, I have a crazy neighborhood story that she busted my, she busted my mother's windows out. <laughs> and it was... It was getting bad. So let's not go down that subject. Let's not go. It was really, it was really awful. Cops were at my neighborhood every day because of it. I feel like when it comes to knowing your neighbors, I, okay, so I agree with. Especially if they're crazy. Okay, know if your neighbors are crazy, but I, I will say that I really feel like it depends on where you are geographically because maybe we can take it from like knowing your neighbors to knowing your city or like the region you're in because I know that, for example, my family attempting to get to know their neighbors in New Hampshire resulted in their Trump, all of the neighbors in our, my family's neighborhood voted for Trump. And on election night, when he won, they marched in the streets from happiness and had firecrackers and sparklers in the middle of the night. What does that remind you of? I don't know, it reminds me of the purge for some weird reason. Okay, well, there's a purge and then there's <laughs> a purge. Okay, okay, okay. So, the purge. <laughs> I've been watching American Horror Story, too. You know what's going on with the Trump thing right now. 
Okay, well, it reminded me of the KKK. I didn't, I didn't watch The Purge. I never want to watch The Purge. I'm going to purge myself of The Purge. Like, it's not happening. But my, my point is that in, in my, my family attempted to get to know their neighbors, what ended up happening was that our neighbors actually began harassing and um, threatening my siblings and my family's safety to the point that we actually set up, um, like, a fence and... <laughs> We literally built a wall against the neighbors. Um, and we have cameras, like literally camera, cameras all over the, like outside the house, as well as one right at the doorbell. So you can see, like we have an app on our phone. It's really creepy in my opinion. But my point is, is that understanding your, the ethnographic makeup of your town and putting out feelers to see what kinds of efforts and initiatives are going on that you can join in on a grassroots level. And if you're not, at least that's what I would say. And, and then if you're not comfortable doing in-person resistance, there's always things to do online. And a lot of times it's really about humanizing the issue. I mean, Esther and I can have a conversation around policy, but then if Esther brings up her personal life, then if I was someone who did not agree with DACA, I'm then forced to reconsider why it is that I don't agree with it when I'm faced with someone that I call my friend or someone that I call a good person. You know, that I think that's something that we don't see a lot of these days on social media. I was just going to like ask if we could clarify what does humanizing ourselves mean necessarily? It means going in the purge. I'm kidding. Oh. <laughs> The way that I mean humanizing is when you state an answer, like let's say that I said that I believe in DACA and I believe that there should be le- like it should be less restrictive that, than it is right now. And the reason is because one of my close friends has been dealing with this issue and came to the United States, right? So if Esther is not there, I can say, hey, like there's actually a personal story that's attached to my answer. And it's the same thing when, you know, people will come at me on social media and be like, well, do you support X, Y, and Z because they're trying to um, basically strip me of my humanity? And I'll say, well, you know, as someone who grew up enjoying the same stuff as you, who cried when she, when she became a citizen, I, you know, like literally just saying who you are, like including a little bit of who you are, the little bit that you're comfortable with because... At the end of the day, humanizing yourself is emotionally taxing. And it's especially difficult when it's something that's this raw. So I do want to thank Estera for speaking out and for also giving um, your personal story during this episode. Because I know, to the fullest extent that I know as a human being that's like watching you on social media and like knows you as a person, I recognize just how draining and difficult this situation and this entire you know even just everything everything has been um since the elections happened and uh so thank you for for coming on and and being willing to steer the ship and just like take us through what it actually means um to be in in your shoes yeah and thank you for saying that Layla and you know, I will say that oftentimes what, and you and I have had this conversation 
multiple times. It's really why I got involved with The Tempest. Um, that oftentimes, like, politicians, um, the media, nonprofits, like, they, they ask us to humanize ourselves because by giving this cookie cutter story where we play a victim, and it's important to tell, to speak truth to power, you know, that, um, we are marginalized people, we are, um, suffering from oppression, and, some of us, you know, some of us, our, our lives are at risk. And that's scary. And, and it's real. But there's also a way to tell your story in a way that really makes you a warrior, that empowers you. And, and you do that by bringing in everything that you are. <laughs> and I really think that that's also the most successful way to humanize um, that doesn't start to play into stereotypes, that doesn't, um, that speaks to the intersection of our identities. And, and I feel that um, this is what the immigrant rights movement of the future is really trying to build, uh, of the present and the future, is really trying to build right now, is that we're tired of kind of like, you know, piecing ourselves and piecing our community to get crumbs, basically. <laughs> from the government. And I think that this is a moment where across communities, not just undocumented immigrants, but Muslims and people of color and queer folk and poor people are really are really starting to find our voice in in different ways, in more powerful ways, where we are now seeing how our struggles um, are the same. And that speaking into our whole identities is actually beneficial to us in our movements because it speaks, it, it, instead of focusing on the similarities that we have, now we're really able to celebrate our differences and it gives us a more comprehensive and holistic view of our struggle. Um, it helps us seize the, the ways that we can build power together. And, uh, and really overthrow <laughs> the, the systems um, that are keeping us all down, that are, um, that are dehumanizing us. And I, I'm just always so grateful for The Tempest um, and you, Layla, and um, for, for creating the space where we don't have to humanize ourselves um, in pieces. Well, I did get your <laughs> fingerprints the other day, so I'm good. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That is horrible. (laughs) (laughs) I'm burning them off right now. Thank you, Esther. And I think with that, we're going to do a friendly hazing. I love using that word because of the fact that it has so many negative connotations to it and it's just awful. Um, I actually don't love using that word. So we're going to do a friendly baptism of Chastity. Welcome to the podcast. Um, by giving her the weird question. I know, you scared me when you said hazing. I was like, oh, what's, what's about to happen? It's not <laughs> in the script. Um, <laughs> but we've had um, the past however many edited minutes that the reader or the listener, LOL, the listener is now listening to, to think about a weird question for us to answer. And you will have to answer it yourself as well. But go for it. Yeah. Okay, a weird question. Has everyone seen Sailor Moon? Yes. Okay. What if you could be any Sailor Scout? Which one would it be? That's so. It can't be Sailor Moon. Okay, you know what? That's not fair. Okay, here's the thing. Here's the thing. <laughs> I watched Sailor Moon at the peak of its popularity because I lived in Japan. 
I lived in Japan for five and a half years, and I had a Sailor Moon wand, and I still have, like, those, like, they had, like, entire vending machines with, like, those little figurines, and so I was Sailor Moon. I also had the Sailor Moon horse, like, the unicorn or whatever. So you had a horse? Yeah, like, I mean, it had, like, a, I don't know if it was, like, Sailor Moon or Sailor Moon Super. There's so many different series. Yeah, see, there's so So many. So I would do Sailor Moon. And then I would make my sister be Sailor Moon's daughter. And for a lot of years, like, we didn't actually know the names because all we had was a video cassette that was still in Japanese. But since we had lived in Japan, we could watch it and still understand what was going on somehow, even though I lost the language. But yeah, I'm Sailor Moon! That's like... <laughs> okay. I can't not... <laughs> I fought for it <laughs> so many years. I remember I had to... My parents would always make us close their, eye, close their eyes when they were transforming because because they were naked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. So I will admit, it's funny, because I watched Sailor Moon when I was in Spain as a kid, and the they mostly have Japanese um, cartoons that they show. It's pretty interesting. But it is so fucking annoying, because in Spain, maybe it's different now, but at the time, all of the voice actors for children's shows were adults, so it was just like, my mom would turn off the cartoons because she was so annoyed at listening to it. Because it's just like adults speaking, like, imagine just like a whole bunch of of adults speaking like babies in baby talk. And that's like the whole cartoon. Could we maybe pull um, it up on YouTube? Do they maybe have a copy? <laughs> yeah, there's probably, there's, you can probably look it up on YouTube. Everybody's gonna look it up on YouTube after they listen to the podcast. Yeah, and it's just, like, very dramatic. Yeah, so I did watch Sailor Moon, but um, I am not familiar with the characters. Um, I think that the girl in green is really cute, though. So, uh, uh, <laughs> can I see her? Isn't she Jupiter? Yeah, or- Jupiter. Yes, Kinda I got tall, it right! Ponytail, I used to that Yeah. Way. Yo, Esther, you would love the show. Well, actually, that's a really big statement to make. But if you watch the show, Hulu, a couple years back, had the show... Um, the original, not the bullshit English translation, like the English version, because in the English version, Sailor Moon, like there are these two allies that it's like Neptune or I don't remember what their names are. They're cousins in the show, in the English show. But if you watch the original Japanese show with the, um, subtitles, these cousins who seem to get too close for comfort are actually a lesbian couple. And like... Americans apparently were not ready for that. <laughs> As a kid, I was always wondering because it was so awkward. Like it was so obvious <laughs> that it was so awkward, and that's like, why? Like, why it's would like, you change it? It's like uh, Auntie Lulu lives with her best friend of many years, and there was obviously like looks between them, so it made it even more awkward when they try to say they were cousins because now they're just like, okay, <laughs> yeah, they're not. They're not. <laughs> they're not cousins. They're not cousins in, re- in the real life no, show. They're not. they're not related at all. They're just lovers. I think my favorite Sailor Scout was uh, Pluto. Because uh, it's purple. It's my favorite color. But I just, uh, she was my favorite character. She was very quiet. She didn't actually have, I feel like, a lot of the own. Uh, showtime of the own. But she's my favorite. Purple. It's very quiet. She was very. I think she might have been maybe one of the older Sailor Scouts. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. She was with Sailor Moon was the youngest. She was the youngest. Mm-hmm. Um, but her, her sister. Wait, 
Wait, it wasn't her sister, but wasn't it actually her daughter, too? It was her daughter. No, no, no. They're, like, different Sailor Moon series, right? And so, like, there's one series where she travels forward in time. Yeah. And, like, meets her daughter. And she's married to, like, that dark Prince Charming dude. You know, like, the guy. Uh, The tuxedo. Tuxedo. Yeah. I used to hate, like, the original episode where he would throw the flower down. That was, like, And there's, like, the music. There's, like, the... Like, there's just, just, like... Oh my god, it's tuxedo. <laughs> Wait, was it? Is the English version with British accents? I have no idea, woman. I would not oh. watch that. I, I cannot watch <laughs> bastardizations of shows. Even watching Hayao Miyazaki's movies in English make me feel weird. Um, like Howl's moving. The only person that I like in English is Howl because. He's voiced by Christian Bale, who has a lot of problems, but his voice is dark and deep, and I enjoy it very much. And that is okay. That's a problematic favorite of mine. (laughs) Okay. Okay, All right. Right now, (laughs) the hosts are currently doing research into the Sailor Moon series while we're supposed to be recording. (laughs) I'm looking. (laughs) So with that, (laughs) I'll close this out. So. The Exposé is produced by Narmin Sayed, Soha Sabeth, Esther Moroni Obaro, Doña Nasser, Mary Morrison, Taylor Fares, Beverly Wakiaga, and me, Leila Lawa. We put out new episodes every Wednesday. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Podmas. Go to thetempest.co for more information, breakdowns of each episode, and the link to our Twitter so you can keep up with us all the time. The expose is brought to you by The Tempest, the global media company changing the narrative of diverse millennial women. Find our playlist on Spotify and eight tracks to spice up your music library. We update it after every episode. If you have any suggestions, complaints, or funny jokes, email hey at thetempest.co or tweet us at The Expose Show. Feel free to send us death threats. We love them. See you next week. Bye.